Hi, listeners. I want to tell you about a cause that I'm involved with at Heritage Radio Network. HRN is celebrating its 15th year, and to celebrate, we're deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Hey everyone, it's Cam Hurt, host of the Best Show Ever podcast, and we have got a second season coming out very soon that I am very excited about. We've got some very cool special guests, including musical acts that we all love, like Karina Reichman, Daniel Donato, Jake Brownstein from Eggy, Rick and Peter from Goose, and many more. Tune in for new episodes dropping on Osiris Media March 5th on the Best Show Ever podcast. Osiris. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Inside the Musician's Brain. I'm your host, Chris Pandolfi from the infamous String Dusters. And today, my friends, today is a big day here at ITMB as we welcome a very special guest to the podcast from the legendary rock band Fish, Mr. Mike Gordon. set the tone there because I am very excited as some of you may know as I'm sure some of you know I love fish and in fact I was at MSG two nights ago on Tuesday night August 1st and if I had to guess they're gonna have a hard time topping that show that's gonna go down as one of the highlights of the MSG run I'm calling it right here right now I'll get more into specifics in a minute on all that but I can tell you they started with an amazing go 17 minutes long, wrapped with You Enjoy Myself, and then came out for a monster four-song encore, basically a bonus set, and that was two nights ago. I flew home to Denver yesterday getting ready for Duster shows this weekend, recording this on Thursday, turning it around for next week. Cannot wait for you all to hear this conversation with Mike. It was so cool, and especially after going to the show, just really awesome to hear so much about what's going on with Fish these days and how these shows come together, how they continue to push the envelope after all these years. It was amazing. We talk about Mike's new solo album, how Fish gets synchronous for their shows, and so much more. Stick around. This one is rich. Inside the Musician's Brain is brought to you this season by Deering Banjos. If you're a banjo player, I'm guessing you've already heard of Deering. If you haven't and you're hoping to get into banjo, Deering is your go-to. They make by far the best affordable banjo out there. It's called the Good Time. They also make a ton of amazing sounding 
ornate, beautiful high-end banjos. They run the gamut. They're all super high quality, sound great. And I just can't say enough great things about this company, started by Greg and Janet Deering, and then is now being run by their daughter, Jamie. I remember meeting Jamie for the first time at IBMA, the International Bluegrass Music Association trade show years ago, and I really respect and admire what they're doing over there at Deering. Can't say enough great things about this company. For all your banjo needs, check out Deering Banjos. And a huge shout out to our other sponsor today, one of my favorite music festivals out there, Winter Wondergrass, which of course has grown to be so much more than one event. They actually have several incredible events going these days. They've got Steamboat in March, they've got Tahoe in April, Baja Wondergrass, River Wondergrass, the list goes on. And we, the infamous String Dusters, have played, I think, at all but one Winter Wondergrass over the years, which is amazing. We've become part of this incredible extended family. Of course, of all these bands that are part of our community, too many amazing bands to mention. The team that puts this event on, our brother Scotty, and of course, all the amazing fans that make this event go. It's one of a kind. It's one of the best. And it's cool to think about how when we started out as a band 15, 16 years ago, there really were not a lot of events like this. Winter Wondergrass has come along. They've changed the game. And like I said, we feel so grateful to be a part of the extended family. You know you can see the infamous String Dusters at Winter Wondergrass. Check them out online. See what they're up to. And if you're looking to add another amazing event to your recreation schedule, Winter Wondergrass is definitely where it's at. Check them out. Inside the Musician's Brain is also brought to you by Osiris Media, home of countless great music podcasts, including one of my favorites, No Simple Road. We're also brought to you by Americana Vibes. That's the infamous String Dusters record label. And I got to say, our team is cranking over there. Tons of new music already out or on the way, including new releases from Andy Hall, from Falco and Book, who played Jerry Garcia live, Morsel, Woodbelly, Midnight North, and so much more. Stay tuned there. And real quick before we get rolling, quick shout out. If you live in Salt Lake City, I'm going to be playing there on Tuesday, September 26th. Chris Pandolfi and friends as part of the Drake 16th Annual Fly Fishing Video Awards at the Depot with Tyler Grant, Jeremy Garrett, and Adrian Engford. That's Tuesday, September 26th in SLC. It's going to be really, really fun. The Drake is one of the best fly fishing magazines out there. Check them out. Okay, now onward to the heady stuff. So you know how you have those moments, those milestones that changed your life in an instant, and they don't necessarily seem like much at the time. doesn't seem like much when it's going down, but then looking back, you can see that these moments just totally changed your trajectory in life. Well, I often have to wonder what would have happened if my older brother, Jono, hadn't given me that lawn boy cassette sometime in the mid to late 1990s for Christmas under the Pandolfi Christmas tree. There it was, this this tape, this mysterious tape. And after that, I, I fell in love with fish, fell in love with music, and the rest is history. What course would my life have charted? Because that was really one of those milestone moments for me that really started a lot of things in action. And in that moment, in that moment, little did my parents know that this small plastic box filled with heady jams called Lawn Boy, while igniting their child's deepest passions, 
would simultaneously ruin their dreams of a law school graduation or anything even remotely comparable to that. It would just crush them with its heady powers. But, but hey, in the end, I think it all worked out. And yes, the architect of it all was my older brother, Jana, one of my biggest inspirations, the legend, the man behind Jano Pandolfi Designs. If you need some amazing dinnerware for your home, shameless plug right there, but he really does make the best dinnerware, and it is featured on the new season of The Bear. Pretty cool. Okay, back to the tape. The tape that changed my life's trajectory. Sounds dramatic, but it's true. I was getting into music at that time, starting to discover stuff that I was into. Jono gives me this tape, Fall in Love with Fish. Then I go to a few shows, and of course, that takes everything to the next level. That really got me inspired because the show, of course, really helps illuminate what is so special about this band and the way they connect with their fans and just how big and powerful live music can be. So that got me started. Then I got into the Flectones, discovered banjo, got totally obsessed with that, and I was off on this whole other journey, kind of tuned out from Fish for a minute, and that sort of coincided with a pretty quiet time for them in the 2000s. And then, nine years ago, I get a text from my man, RJB, Osiris founder, podcast host, all-around great guy, and he said, hey, we're on our way to Dick's to see Fish. You should come. I'm like, hey, why not? Head over to the show. Here they come, two songs in with a gnarly sand. The band is crushing. The audience is in a trance, and I was really right there with all of it. Loved it. Got my ticket for the next night right away. And I was back and it was no surprise. I feel like I fell in love with all the things I was into the first time around and more because there is so much more. This band is truly in a different place now. And I have to tip my hat to them for evolving in so many ways as individuals, as a band, new songs, new set list ideas, the production, everything is so innovative and cool. And I love that about Fish. And I love that about any artist for that matter, when they evolve and hone their craft through lots of experience. And I guess I guess that's my PSA today for all you Fish fans who are trapped in the 1990s, is to get off fantasy tour and come on up to the present moment because I'm here to tell you, and I've seen them in both eras, and I'm here to tell you that they are doing something new and that it's pretty sick. Comparison, they say, Travis always says this, comparison is the thief of joy. And as a career artist myself, I can tell you that you really need to evolve as you progress, as your career progresses. And you need that mostly for yourself to keep things fresh, to keep yourself inspired. But of course, you need that for the fans too and and to stay relevant among a huge field of artists Always, that's always growing. And having fans who embrace that, who encourage that is huge. It really means a lot. And yeah, we, we see some of that feedback in the obvious places. And it's always a lift to know that you have our back when we're putting ourselves out there and trying new things, trying to learn from what we're doing and ultimately evolve as artists. And Fish, of course, has evolved in so many ways. And I'm here to tell you that they are really, truly on it as a band, putting on incredible shows right now. And of course, this was totally on display two nights ago at the Garden. Again, the Tuesday, August 1st show. And I 
got to believe that's going to go down as a highlight of the run. They come out with a 17-minute story of the ghost that had that classic kind of patient, exploratory energy that I love. You're really on a journey with the band. And they had some huge moments in the show, too, like the first set closer, I Am the Walrus, with a long, just gnarly, twisting peak. I love that side of the band. And they got that energy up, and they kept it up through a monster, basically bonus set, four-song encore on a Tuesday night of all times. I love that. They they really keep you guessing because conventional wisdom says, ease into it and let's pace ourselves with a bunch of shows to go. And that was not how it felt on Tuesday night. And as you are about to hear in this interview, Mike talks a bunch actually about how they keep that evolution going as a band, how they get synchronous going into shows, how they stay unpredictable with the set list. It's so cool. I have to say this was such an interesting, thoughtful talk. And in terms of their evolution as a band, I especially love when Mike gets into talking about the no analyze rule that they made in the late 90s, which basically said you can't analyze the show at set break because then it's inevitably going to influence what's going on in everybody's head as they head out to make music for the second set. And there's such a great lesson in there, one of a lot of experience about how staying present with the music and your bandmates is an act of trust, not of analysis, how it's an act of intuition and not of thinking. Because analysis and getting lost in thought in the heat of the moment, that's not going to to help you get present and really channel something. And there's a time for analysis and a time to learn from what you're doing, and Mike talks about that too. But it's that perspective on presence and all the gems and tips that Mike shares about how to get there that I thought were so interesting. And like I said, that's coming from someone with a lot of experience. I got to say, I sure am glad Fish has achieved longevity. Their show is a great chance for all of us to see how big the sort of musical group experiment experience can grow and what it can look like on a very big scale. And that is some major inspiration right there. I got to say, Mike was just so generous with his ideas and his experiences, and we covered a lot of ground. So without further ado, let's jump ahead to my talk with Mike Gordon. Here we go. live here on Inside the Musician's Brain and big guest today, really excited about this, amazing bass player, singer, songwriter, producer, you know him from the legendary rock band Fish, Mike Gordon. Welcome to the podcast, man. Thank you. Thanks for having me. <laughs> yeah, this is this is a real treat and I have to say thank you for joining me because I know you're doing the quick turnaround right now. You just came in from a big Mike Gordon band tour. How was it? It was great. Um, I really just have so much fun with that because I need to make so many decisions and do so much all day long. I never, I don't really sleep that much. Um, 
it's funny that it's people call it the MGB. It's not really. It's really just my name, and my fantasy has been to have uh, a band name. So I have a list of five thousand heinously bad ones, which are my daily jokes, and then maybe <laughs> ten or twenty possible ones. Management thinks it's better for it to be my name that it's kind of more serious that way. Um, anyway, it was great. We had um, a new keyboard player, Rachel Eckroth, for. Um, the store and hopefully more. Um, Robert Walter is incredible. We had chosen him, um, you know, after listening to a bunch of different and, and, and actually auditioning with a bunch years ago. Um, and the others were good too, but Robert just had something that really fit. And now, um, he's been on Roger Waters tour for a couple sure. of years, Roger Waters' tour and Rachel really fit in well. Um, and, is an incredible singer, incredible musician, and so, um, and we hadn't played in a while either. So with new album and first tour in a while and different, uh, slightly different lineup, it was all very fresh. And and with that said, I think it was good. It was. It felt best when we were relaxed. In my world, like relaxation is what leads to energy, and okay. and from that comes to ideas. And and even like we can talk about more as we talk but like playing less and doing less musically specifically leads to more musical ideas as well hmm. um it's a, so that's been something i've been toying with and we definitely got into it this tour and i'm just looking forward to being able to do it more uh, but when it felt good which was most of the time it felt incredible um to be out there and I think that my band even has a sound. It's been 14 years. It hasn't been 40 like Fish, but enough so that there's there's um, some interplay and some telepathy and and starting to have its sound with you know like all of our influences kind of melded sure. together and yeah, it's really fun for me to be kind of at these smaller venues and it's like being on the front lines or something, um, hanging out with you know well I don't hang out with a lot of a lot of fans but but you know it's it's much more humble where i can just yeah you have to tell us if it wasn't going to be called the mike gordon band what would it be called <laughs> oh man don't get me started i i have th these these intentionally off offensive and cringeworthy stupid ones are so we could we could talk for hours and i do i i like talk to people about the funny ones um but the real ones, oh man, it's like I always wanted to be, I like it when two words are brought together, like Rolling Stones or Radiohead. Okay. okay. Those, those kinds, but, but, and not made up words, but just real simple words. And so I, I, I kind of, oh, well, okay. This, I don't think this is going to be the one, but Tessa, my daughter, and I um, sat in a coffee shop and she said, okay, if you want to do that, then I'll just go to this app that pairs words for you randomly. Oh, there you go. And one we came up with was Overglow. That kind Overflow. of resonated at the time, so yeah. Now that now that I'm mentioning it, someone else can steal it, and then I'll. <laughs> no, that's okay. <laughs> I do agree that you guys have developed a sound, and it's cool. It's really got an identity, and you know, after checking these albums out over the years, this new this new record is great. Some of the video stuff that I saw was great. We just we just missed crossing paths with you at Blue Ox, unfortunately. I know. Yeah. I've always enjoyed your sets, so um, that's too bad, but yeah. Our first meeting way back in the day when you sat in with the infamous String Dusters at a time when, honestly, this may have been before the infamous String Dusters, but 
you were there doing a record with Leo Kaki, mm-hmm. grabbed my banjo and got up on stage for some old home place. Yeah, that must have been, I'm thinking 05, that's when we, unless it was 04, uh, maybe 05, because we released it that year, and I think we were doing some mixing and some final overdubbing, and I love the Station Inn. I mean, sometimes I will go down Broadway and go to the Honky Tonks and Roberts and that kind of thing, but I've had great times at the Station Inn, and that's a memorable, that was a memorable experience. Yeah. Um, I don't tend to keep my banjo chops where, you know, where they ought to be if I if I'm picking up banjos and sitting in, but, uh, but maybe a little bit more back then than now. My friend Andy Cartoon, who you might know. Um, yeah, of course. He, so when I was in New York, uh, when, I, when I moved to New York in, I guess, 01, most of what I did down there was, was bluegrass, and there were these all-night picking parties. Oh, yeah. And Andy, I always thought of Andy as like the uh, New York City's mascot to the bluegrass world and they all know him and they all like stay at his apartment and and then these picking parties and so he became my banjo teacher every tuesday night so did you ever go to like uh jack dempsey's did you ever go to that jam session or like any of these open Maybe. jams around the city the bag it was in? it called the bag it in i went to all okay. the time that's awesome. so there was this I, I just have to share this one I, yes I please this is just silly so there was one night um when chris Thiele and michael dave's we're playing somewhere in 11th or 12th Street on the east side and drinking whiskey. And um, I was there with Jared Slomoff, who I've been working with for 22 years on making studios and making albums and even soundtracks. So Jared and I were there, just the two of us, I think. And we were just blown away. I had, I had seen the Punch Brothers already and love what Chris does. But this particular night, he, they both were channeling something. It, it was mm. like all of the, the Bartok and the Bill Monroe were perfectly synthesized with, with nothing held back. No BPM, no amount of soulfulness. There was just infinite supply of all I that. I remember it. they also had the, the Bose poles that go up like eight feet as their sound system, the thin, yes. narrow, tall Bose poles. And there were only about, I don't know, 10 people there. And Jared and I were... It was one of the best musical performances of my life. I would put a couple dead shows in there and a couple other, th- oh, Buddy Rich probably, and maybe Sun Ra, I don't know. But this was definitely one of the top. And Very cool. <laughs> so afterwards, I think maybe I'd mes- met Chris before, or maybe I just met in there, but, but Jared was so taken aback that he walked all the way from 11th Street up to, I think we were, we were going up, he was uptown somewhere, like 60 blocks with, just in a daze, trying to process mentally what had just happened. And I talked to Chris and ended up getting in the back of his car, maybe both of them, and going to the bag it in. And so no just kidding. to tease Jared, what I did is I sent him a text. I said, told him what I was doing, and, and to add some spice to it, I said that um, 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 McCoy Tyner was there also playing uh, like a Moog Liberation or guitar <laughs> or something like that, Moog Liberation. And he and, and you should really be here. That part was a lie. I did get to meet McCoy Tyner too around then, um, but but I, that was just my, my my fib. And he had to call the club and he had to verify it because he, <laughs> he he was gonna get in his cab and he was gonna dart down there. Anyway, sorry, little little. But that was a bag it in one of those um, yeah moments. I remember. I love it. Uh, I remember talking to Chris that night too, and he said and, and he started playing Poor Heart. <laughs> 
And no kidding. I was thinking, oh, it's funny that you know that song at all. And I started to tell him the story about how it used to be you won't steal my four track again about my tape recorder that had been stolen, which is a long story. And long enough that he was bored and he walked away. <laughs> <laughs> well, but still. Well, that's, uh, it sounds like a classic NYC night where worlds collide. And if, if you haven't checked out the records, or I don't know how many they've done, but Chris Thiele and Michael Daves have some really, really cool stuff I together. I think I've and checked out at least one. Yeah. But, but yeah, it was the looseness. It was unhinged. Yes. Like sometimes musicians and I've seen so many greats over the years as I'm sure you have but sometimes they have this way of tapping in to the 10% reserve that's not always tapped into even with all the greatness because of an extreme surrender and it was just uh, you know and sometimes it's the low it's the gigs where there's not too many people in the middle yeah. of nowhere not hyped no special outfits uh, anyway <laughs> that's very cool so tell me so you're getting ready to head out on a big fish tour in like a matter of days, right? I mean, you, you're doing you're doing the quick turnaround here. Yes, in a, I know, in a matter of two days. And so, yeah, so after a tour, uh, it's better now coming in and out of tours now that I'm working out every day and meditating every day. It makes it better, but it's still hard. It's gonna take a few days or a week to really start sleeping. But the other problem I have is before tours. Before tours, I'm getting ready, I'm doing final errands, final preparations, or things that I won't be able to do till I get back, which is in one month. And this kind of tour ending and tour beginning at the same in the same week means there's not gonna be much sleep this week. It's just like, I think of it as, oh, now I go home and rest, and that is just not the way it works. So what is what does the preparation look like on a musical front for you? Because I know that you guys have a very sort of wide open format, don't go on stage with the set list and there's a lot of things on the table. How do you how do you prepare yeah. for that? Well, okay, different ways, different tours or different years. So um, I mean there are times when we'll get together for an extended few days or even a week of practice or even a few days or a week of writing or you know, um, that's more when we haven't seen each other for a while. So for this, um, what I learned um is that Trey has a bunch of fun songs that he had. I mean, Trey's been writing songs since he was eight years old and prolifically every day. And that's one of the, there are so many things about Trey that I'm uh, in awe of and I, I, I admire so much. And how prolific he is, is one. And because, you know, talk about the 10,000 hour rule or the 100,000 hour rule and so I appreciate that, and so he's always writing, and now all of us are always writing. Um, but I, we, we've worked a lot recording with Bryce Goggin, and he came in for two of these days to record bass lines on nine demos. And, the, and so now we have new material, and I always like to have new material. It doesn't matter if it's mine, although I would like to bring some more of mine now that I have a new album and et cetera. But, but anyway, I, regardless of whose material it is, I just like something fresh in there. Um, so one of the songs I had actually heard before and we had played live before, so I'm not sure why the new demo was being created, but I enjoyed playing over it. And you know, some of the songs I gravitate more to than others, and that doesn't happen before every tour. But this time, Trey likes to um, sort of teach, acclimate people to songs by getting their own playing on the demo. Hmm. So then okay. we have a tech rehearsal. So the tech rehearsal with Fish, 
the tech is always changing. New bases, new base rigs, everyone's got stuff changing. Mm -hmm. But that just kind of works itself out. The, te the, the techs are waiting on the side and they help and stuff. So it's more, you know, working on new material. Honestly, when Fish gets together for these rehearsals, when we're going to have them, it's usually jamming. Um, I, I'm always impressed by the inclination of the Fish guys and Trey as leader to just plug in and play for an hour a lot of that first day or you know or two days or whatever of tech rehearsal and some great musical ideas have come from just the free uh flowing it's really interesting to have two bands i gotta say because um i've told trey before i don't think i don't know that i would be that great of a band leader of fish for a few reasons um he is such a great leader in a bunch of ways um you know and you know we all contribute but it i think strong groups have have someone um, guiding the way, and with my band, I get together. We just we had a full week of rehearsals, uh, which we used five days of whirlwind rehearsals, because hadn't played in three and a half years. Had a new person, had a new album. It was just so much, and, you know. And um, there's a little bit of listening exercises, and there's a little bit of jamming. But for me, I just like to get the changes and really dial in the harmonies, and just be a little bit of a perfectionist, knowing that it'll go out the window and what'll be most important is the fun. And, um, but the fish guys and, you know, the exploration, the spontaneity and what we sure. can plan, that's always the best. But the fish guys are really good about getting up there on a rehearsal day and doing a lot of freeform jamming. It's, it's a really, I really um, think it's a noble cause. It, it almost sounds like you're, you're talking about getting more in tune with each other, just like on the same wavelength. It is. Not, not as much exactly. reviewing old material per se. Right. It's not usually reviewing old material. Well, I'll continue with my answer. So, um, because we have these all these new songs, and I think probably Trey and Fish just played them on some dates. Uh, anyway, because Trey and, and Fish, John Fishman, uh, I think we'll probably concentrate on some of those, but there'll be time for just reform jamming. And then the next day we start doing gigs. But when we're doing gigs, first of all, yeah, like you said, I mean, there's a big repertoire. Um, and it's probably 600 songs. I don't know how many of those are actual playable. There's certainly 200 playable ones. Uh, but people keep writing and people enjoy the freshness. And, you know, the fact that we never had a hit song works in our favor, because if we had, then we would have to play American Pie every night. <laughs> I saw Don McLean just like yelling at the audience for requesting that song and, uh, you know, practically having the person removed and, and from the club. Um, not that having hit songs, I mean, you know, everyone likes to have a something part of the the cultural lexicon when they can. But what um, your what your guys' fans really look for is that diversity and, and exactly, and they like a bust out. So exactly. every day we'll have rehearsals for at least half an hour, or sometimes yeah, maybe thirty minutes, sometimes forty five minutes uh, before the show, where we we review old songs, and if there's new ones, we review new songs. Um, and those basically come come from a pool of songs that are going to be eligible for that night once you get on stage and the journey is underway. I, I don't even know how specifically I'm supposed to be talking about this, but since no one told me it's taboo, I'll just say, Trey wakes up at 6 in the morning and he starts working on the set list. Gotcha. And then for 12 hours, he'll be working on the set list. Now, because <laughs> it's improv and, going, you know, and let, going where the wind blows and all that sort of thing, with the vibe... It, it's not something that we're going to follow um, carefully. But when, when 6 p.m. hits, and I'm just 
taking guesses. This isn't exact. Around 6 p.m., I will get the first set set list. The first set set list is, at that point, 50 songs. Let's say 60 okay. songs. And the first set will be about, I don't know, seven songs, eight songs, six songs. So then, that's like, let's say, 6 p.m., 7 p.m., I'll get another one. And that's been weeded down to, let's say, 30 songs. And then 7.30, I'll get another one. And that's been weeded down to 23 songs for the first set. And that's what we go in with. And Trey's making the, you know, I think he talks to Paige a bunch. It's kind of like I talk to Scott Murawski a lot <laughs> when I don't. Oh, no, not just Scott. I, I like to get different. You know, interestingly, Craig Myers, who's the percussionist, percussionist he's the one. Yeah. And he also plays the Ngoni, though we didn't use it on this tour, which is the harp instrument. Um, he has this intuitive sense that's really always impresses me. He's, he's just in tune. And so I might go to Craig and I might say, like, look, we have two choices right now, which one is it? And I just trust him. I've been playing with him since the beginning of 14, cool. for 14 years. He's so, I also enjoy about Craig that he, he keeps the part where everyone can, can be varying what they're playing, their patterns. He is so steady with his, his part. There are percussionists that go crazy the whole time, but he's the opposite. And I really enjoy that because it, it creates this glue and this thread through the song and the jam. And then in the, after a few minutes, when like the second chorus comes or the middle of the jam or whatever, he changes and like he picks up a tambourine or a shaker or whatever it is. And then it's like, oh, this is, it, it's, uh, you know, because it was the same for so while, it seems like the perfect change. And, but, but in terms of uh, set lists, you know, um, Trey, he doesn't, he also doesn't like to look online and read comments and things like that. It can be, you know, it can be damaging to an artist to, not just to see negative stuff, but even positive stuff. And he's of, of a philosophy to avoid that. But he'll have managers looking online and seeing what songs, what old songs we haven't played in 10, 15 years do people want to hear. And where where and just, are they looking know, Where are they looking to find that information out? I actually don't know. I'm just, different places online. And like fan-based archive type stuff. Fan-based stuff, okay. social media. Sure, sure, sure. Um, but plus his... His daughter Bella is a fan, and she has friends, and he might check in with her or other people that just are kind of like in the know about what do people want to. It's just very thoughtfully crafted, even though it's going to be veered from. Sometimes there are efforts to take a song like like such and such song is always the set closer, or such and such song is always a set two song. Mm -hmm. Set twos are a little bit more dreamy, adventurous. Fewer songs, longer jams, a little bit. Now the the, the set ones are pretty friggin' uh, loose as well these days. But uh, anyway, and he'll mix that up. And I'll say, well, this is a set closer song. Let's uh, open with it. Or this is a. Uh, it's, I, I I really only know this experience from my own band where I do it and I check in with Scott on it. But you know, the set wants to have a certain arc. But I don't know if the same if the arc is the same always. Then that's. I'm of such of a world where predictable is not what's enjoyed and spontaneity is what's enjoyed. Um, so even with my band, you know, I can relate with the idea of, uh, you know, we always start off with kind of something energized and let's start off with something really chill and just see how that feels or an ooze into it, ease into it. And uh, I feel like I've noticed Fish mixing things up on this front in these last few yeah. years. Second set songs in the first set, 
big closers yeah. coming as like the second song of the set. That second se- second to last song sounding like the closer. I just I, I again I just have so much admiration for Trey, and I feel like what that is is he's always wanting to push to the limits of energy, energy mm. especially, and and I think he succeeds and, and pushes pushes us, and we all. When something feels like it, it culminated, oh, could we just do a little more? What's the extra credit? What's the bonus that'll push it over the top? And, you know, not that it would always succeed. Maybe we should have stopped after the second. But but I really love that intention of let's just put our entire souls, let's just squeeze ourselves dry of any energy and spirit that we might have, so that it's all out on the table. I think I don't know. I appreciate that attitude because if you're not in it with all of your life, has so much to offer and. And art has so much to offer. Why not? There's no reason not to give it all. Oh, man. And that, yeah. above anything else, is what comes out in a performance. I mean, people aren't yeah. going to remember whether something right. was executed right. properly. What they're going to be tuned into is whether you guys are in it and giving it your all. Yeah. It's, it's so cool to hear that from you, man, because I think the fans, we feel that for sure. Yeah. It's kind of like, I mean, I've had a lot of my life is framed by peak experiences and they don't always happen, but there's always these days a level of consistency where it's fun and it's good. Um, but once you've had some life-changing religious type experiences playing music, there's kind of no going back. It's like, uh, it's exploring part of the brain, part of the heart, part of the soul and part of the body that you didn't know was in there. And I remember Jerry Garcia used to talk about that, that there, there's, parts of the soul that, you know, drugs could help you get there if you're into that, uh, if you're careful about it. It's not usually my way of getting there. Um, but it, once you get a taste of it, it's, it's, it's worth exploring this. It's almost like another dimension, except like in stranger things, the other dimension is just the upside down. And so, uh, everyone gets killed and stuff. It's the opposite. It's like this dimension of, of human possibility that, you know, we all know it from, whether it's, you know, realizing you're in love or seeing a sunset or for us musicians having those peak moments or even music fans going to something that was, like I was saying about that Chris Thiele night, um, the extra, the, unt- the untapped resource that, that you don't normally see becomes visible. Can you describe one of these peak musical experiences, something like specific that yeah. you actually went oh, through? Oh, definitely. That's a, that's a great question, which I appreciate. I go to my first... Almond Brothers show and Dead show and this experience of music, you know, and also saw some jazz greats and, you know, started listening to Indian music and African music. I'm just trying to take in all I can and bluegrass definitely as a, as a teenager. And, but I started to realize that these possibilities in music weren't just a bunch of people learning some songs and performing them with a nice vibe and a nice, you know, uh, a reliable uh, accuracy or something, that there were these intangible things, intangible qualities in the experience of music. And I then had my own first peak experience, which I've talked a lot about over the years, like super top peak, playing with the guys. Jeff Holdsworth was in the band, so we had um, five of us in 1985, November of 85. So I've talked about that a lot, that one, and that was just, it was, it redefined everything for me. And I knew I needed to do this every, you know, in different cities. Um, but in, in, a, in a nutshell, you, you had a mm, moment where you had a glimpse into something that you just previously didn't know about. It, it was a whole night. And by the end, there were only two of them. 
two people watching us. And there were five of us in the band, in the dark. So, and then in between, I walked out into the woods and I hugged a tree. <laughs> There's the obligatory <laughs> tree hugging that happens in these situations. And I said, I have got to do this with this group of people in different cities wow. across the country. Cool. And so flash forward now 38 years, because we've been together for 40 years since that moment, and I'm still doing it. Uh, and I dedicated all the next journals um, that I wrote, at least a handful, to figuring out what had happened that night. And it wasn't a glimpse, like a cosmic glimpse. It was more like being at home and feeling more at home than I had ever been, by a hmm. lot. Um, just like doing the dishes, or just like something commonplace in your life, or you know, you're sitting at home with your wife, or your child, or your pet, or something, and, and, and you take a deep sigh and you realize, and you, you feel actualized, mm -hmm. self-actualized. It was that so, in, in such an enhanced and, high, and heightened way that I promised myself to remember that any discussions of it, even 38 years later or in, one day later in my journal, wouldn't do it justice because the experience was so different and yet so normal and so, so much being myself that, that, that it, it couldn't be put into words. We'll get right back to my interview with Mike Gordon after this very short break. Hi, this is Chad Nicefield. And this is Justin Press. We're the host of Making Waves, the Shiprock Podcast, a part of the Sound Talent Media Podcast Network. We're inviting you to sail away with us on an epic journey in musical enlightenment. Every week, we bring you only the best artists in rock music and discuss everything from the cruise to the stage to the saga of being a professional recording artist. We'll have lots of special guests along the way, so tune in every week. Your stateroom is available every Monday morning, so welcome aboard. Hello, Tom May here, host of Future Friday. I've spent the last 15 years on the road with my band, The Menzingers, where I've met all kinds of wild and fascinating people. So I started a podcast. On Future Friday, I talked to fellow musicians about the moments that made them, their passions outside of music, and the curiosities that tie us all together. I've also talked to the likes of UFO researchers, magicians, soldiers, and documentary filmmakers, and I'm constantly searching for folks that can shape and change our view of the world. You can check out Future Friday wherever you like. So over the years, there have been experiences like that. Um, that might have been the peak because it was the first one, but um, there have been, and even in the last tour, there were there were there were peaks. Um, for me, when it's happening, um, interesting things happen. Um, and one thing that happens is that I have access to my night dreams. I can very specifically remember recent or okay. old or reoccurring or older night dreams. And I lately have been wondering whether some of those are fake. In other words, they never are never really dreamed them. They're ones for the future or ones them, but they're just a very specific place, like a like a geographical location or or a kind of like whether it's a house or someone's deck in the mountains or whatever. And then people and, and emotions and like feeling connected to people or like crush having a crush on someone or whatever it is just just um, rich all the senses including um, the heart and the soul <laughs> if we if those are senses are, are activated in an in a, almost like lucid dreaming 
where in lucid dreaming, it's not only that you realize you're dreaming, but you um, have your, your senses and the electrical activity in your brain is heightened to a higher voltage, literally. Uh, so everything coming in in that lucid dream is more vivid, more lucid than even being awake. Um, and that's what, it's, that's what those experiences are like, where I have access to the different nooks and crannies of whatever my soul is and memories and emotional memories and you know, just whatever. And then I also feel that the stage and the room and the, feel like a living room. They feel very intimate, like, like being at home. Um, and in the sense that I don't want to be anywhere else. It's this, I keep coming back to this, this home word, which I'm sure in bluegrass you can relate to. Home is well, such a I, big word. I, I get it because I think a lot of times when you hear someone talk about a peak experience, you think of more of like an expansive, like expand your right. mind and get this view into all these new pathways and, and energies and right. feelings. But you're you're saying something that's, I think equally as important, but maybe not as sort of, um, you know, it, it's it's not painted in the same light, but feeling like yeah, oh, so familiar. It's something comfortable and grounding and important. It's self-actualization. It was, it's what Joseph Campbell talked about all the time. Joseph Campbell said that all of the world religions were developed because, well, maybe people had certain peak experiences, but because people wanted to feel a sense of the eternal and not wait for the afterlife. They wanted to feel the eternal in their normal life while being alive on earth. And yeah. and that's what they got. And, and, and organized religion doesn't always let you go there, but, um, but by an initial passion and, and, and an initial in, in inclination with religion was, was to allow that to happen. And so many of the world religions, while they seem so different, have these similarities. And he even, there's that series, um, the Bill Moyer series from the like late eighties that you can see six episodes on whatever Amazon. And I watched them while I was on the treadmill and he even said he went to a dead show and it was the same thing. Uh, Joseph Campbell and other experiences like that. He traveled the world and he went to different, you know, he would go to tribal rituals. And you, if someone thinks of a peak experience being like, I can now connect to an asteroid that's, um, I haven't seen the new Wes Anderson movie yet, but anyway, that's, um, you know, 400 light years away and traveling between two planets in this solar system. And now I can see its trajectory. It's, it's much more for me, like this is my kitchen counter. And there was this little, um, teacup there just sitting there for a long time. And now I appreciate everything about that teacup with, it's so common and it's so yeah. much part of my, my regular home life. And now it's like, Oh, I'm opening my eyes to what's um, enchanting and enhanced about that little teacup. Right. So that would be my visual. Okay, so what were you going to say? <laughs> That's cool. There's some real kind yeah. of crossover with with Zen Buddhism and the divine yeah. and the simplicity all all together in, in the same place right. at the same time. But I was going to ask you, so how then after these peak experiences, how do they then shape the way that your life mm. feels like moving forward? Well, I feel like seeking more of them, <laughs> like, 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 but unlike a drug addiction, I don't know that they're harmful or, you know, um, they're, they're the opposite. They're, they're nourishing for the soul. Sure. 
Um, we, I have a peak experience. I want to have more of them, but I can also go home and, or I can also go out to uh, a restaurant with after a show and just kind of bask and float on the wave of, uh, so that's not the same as being in the middle of the moment because now it's a different moment, but it, it, it's got this kind of reverberation of um, excitement and appreciation, gratitude for being alive and there for being go. able to have this, this outlet. And it also, another thing that I like to do um, is I like to do, and I don't, well, yeah, I often do it, is writing from jams. Um, could be jams that happen just to jam, but it's more often it's a rehearsal or a sound check or a gig. I always have a foot switch now that was custom made that will record little bits. Um, so something spontaneous that you dig that you can then extrapolate out into more of a composed So piece. I'll, yeah, so because the greatest thing about a good jam, when the improvisation, where it feels like we're songwriting on the spot and we go sure. to a new place that sounds like a new song and then I feel like, well, let's let it be a new song and let's see if it fits with certain lyrics because usually it is just a musical thing. Uh, on occasion, it's it's sort of a chant that someone does, but much more often it's a musical thing and um, I listen back and often listening back, something sounds a little more like not so fresh or almost it could maybe cliche or boring or whatever. And then certain little recordings sound like, oh, my God. And it, it's usually the simplest things, but they're fresh, whether it's a drum beat or a melody or whatever it is that I feel like, oh, this reminds me of things that I really like, but I never heard this one like this. It seems fresh. And so I then I keep a playlist uh, when I when I get into songwriting, I have all of those. And sometimes, you know, it might be like humming something uh, that I think of, or it might be strumming a guitar, some guitar lick, or uh, or even other people's songs that I'm inspired by the groove or something, or something about how they recorded. And I just keep these playlists. And then I keep, I do the same for lyrics, where I, I cool. get inspired about a concept or a phrase, and I just keep lists so I can bring the resonance back by being reminded. Um, so, but anyway, coming back, in a way, these peak experiences generate other peak or they, they lead to um to new experiences based on i i feel like it's in a way it's my way of honoring them too and saying well i'm never going to have that moment again because it's only in that moment that that moment exists and, you know you can listen back to a recording and maybe have a new moment maybe have a moment where where that didn't feel like so great at the time during the gig but whatever it is that was then, and this is now. But yeah. to then be able to say, okay, well, there, there's a gift here, and it's just a little baseline, or it's just a little chord progression, or it's just a way of putting ambiences together, or whatever it is. And you know, and I'm not a purist, and you know, I'm not going to say that it should be left behind, and I'm not going to say that it needs to be used in any certain way just because it was good then. Um, I just like dabbling in it. Yeah. I just like having things to dabble in. That's that's really cool, and and a great segue to talking about flying games, but I got to say, we took, we took a left turn about five minutes in, yeah. but I, I love this <laughs> stuff, man. No, yeah. this is, this is, well, it's what I think about a lot. This is what, what I'm all about. And that's what I think about a lot. And I think that's what a lot of people who listen to this music, like to get a little bit of a deeper look at and, and, and there, but we, we, I got a, I got a list here and I got to hear about this, okay. this okay. new album. And, and I've got a few more questions for you about, about cool. the fish stuff and performance stuff. Okay. That, that's all really Really, really cool. Really, really interesting. And I love the way you tie it up about, you know, just understanding that those experiences are out there is a lot of fuel for the fire that's inside you, you know, and see, you know, seeking just, them out in new ways. I'll just add one other thing, which we Please. don't have to 
I, I know you've got you've gotten more. Um, I've talked a bunch about this, but with my bands, we do this thing called the non-varying exercise because everyone is so agile on their instruments and not just their instruments, but their knowledge of music and their vision for music. Um, the people can do a lot of playing mm-hmm. and in a in a jam band, which is a terrible sounding word, um, it can be it can become instantly noodly, you know, which is just not connecting. It's people in their own worlds. Um, so this actually came from an experience with Bob Weir actually when I was doing the Dead and Company thing before it became Dead and Company, uh, before it got its name, uh, before OTL took over, and Bob, Bobby kept us to one pattern. Um, after a week of noodling, he said, just, just play this song, but only one chord, only one pattern, no embellishing, no soloing. And it sounded more to me like the Grateful Dead having this spiritual musical experience when Jerry Garcia was in the band than any of the week prior, even Why though it was a musical meditation. Is? It's been one of the most fascinating things of my last few years. Um, Please, well, tell me. I'll, fast, I'll flash forward to this tour that we were just on, and in the middle, Scott said, "Can we do a non-varying exercise?" And we hadn't been doing it. Um, Rachel fit in so well; she's so good at fitting in. Rachel Ekra, that some of the like little exercises we might have thought to do didn't really feel like we needed to do, despite having a new person. But it was great that we did because what happens is, as soon as so, what all we do is we pick a pattern. I had the fish guys do this once, I think. But anyway, pick a pattern and stick to it. And that's it. Every time we do it, it sounds like a new song to me. I don't know how that works. It's almost like the brain is saying, oh, God, because I'm not going to be able to vary this. It might, might it better be interesting in the slightest, subtlest ways from the, from the get-go. Anyway, so after, you know, like if you do this for five minutes, it sounds like, it feels like an eternity. Because five minutes of, and it's usually a two-bar pattern or something like that, mm-hmm. or one bar, whatever. But what happens is the brain wants to do stuff. And so much of what's great about fish, I find these days, is the not doing. They're like, we are going to get on A minor, and we are going to sit there. And people are full of energy, and you know, and there might be like flurries of notes and things, but we're just going to let it play itself. I think that's what fish is actually best at right now. And there's a few things I think we're good at, but that especially. And... So there's such a relaxed feeling of the muse is going to play the music and we're and we're not like period. Uh, not that it always works out that way, but it, but it's more than a lot of bands I think. And with my band, there's so much musical. There's also so much musical prowess and less time to get comfortable. Less fewer decades to get comfortable as a band. That doing this non-varying exercise means that okay, two and a half minutes have gone by. I can't add another note to the bass line, so what am I going to do? First, there's a little panic of, I'm claustrophobic. I can't change it. I can't change it. And then there's like, oh, I'm going to take a deep breath, um, as with meditation. And I've been doing TM now for eight years. And Anyway, and mindfulness for 25 years before that. But it's a musical meditation. And so suddenly I'm able to hear that there is actually a lot of varying, that every conga hit is different from the previous. Yes. This And everything in there, and I'm seeing between the notes. I'm not just thinking of notes and creating new ones and coming up with ideas. I'm basking in what's already there and what the muse cool. has to offer 
Yeah, so that has been, it's really strange. I haven't cracked the code of it and why it works so well. But whenever, and then we did it again. And again, it was Scott who asked us to, like a couple other times this tour. It's only a two, two and a half week tour. And every time we did it, it helped me. Because, I mean, some of my peak experiences, bass lines are like, what I'm playing is, is sometimes two notes or even one note. Like a reggae bass player might for like a, a, a long dub session or something. Or, you know, some techno-y thing or whatever where it's really not supposed to vary. But every note I'm infusing with love. <laughs> and no, I'm not trying really to say cool. that, I'm so, that I'm so great at it. It's just like an attention. Um, and, I'm, and because it's not cool... Because if like there are great bass players out there watching me, because um, because it's not interesting, it has to be something else, and the something else is this 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 peak enhancement sort of intention. Anyway, that was my extra thing to throw into the. I love that. It, it, I was gonna say it almost just speaks to something you hear a lot about, which is sort of our, you know, we're we're being trained to have a bit of a short attention span these days, and there's an impatience right, about us humans, and yeah, and and. But there's a lot in the music, maybe more so than we think. But we're always trying to throw that new thing and mm -hmm. say our piece and be heard. But if you can just, yeah. I mean, when when Bobby first dropped that exercise on you guys, was it because he thought people were doing too much and he wanted to try and rein things in? And yeah, I mean, he was actually right. We were all just yeah. playing a million notes, um, and he wanted to rein things in. Yeah, he wanted to, and not only rein things in, but like it, to see those subtleties. Yeah, like. He even, he talked about how rock and roll is, the definition of rock and roll, this is another thing from Bob, he said it's swung, swing versus straight rhythms. Like, like the rock is the straight and the swing is the roll. And I know it's sexual term too, but, um, or in uh, innuendo, but um, he was saying like in Elvis's band, there was the guitar player who always swung, or, or, or maybe it was like a swung drum beat and the guitar player was always straight and that okay. created rock and roll. Okay. And you, it, by playing a million notes and reviewing all of you've learned in the last month about scales and riffs and this and that, you're not going to notice something like that subtle as the swing versus the straight. But if you're pretty much doing nothing, there's more room to, to notice all that. And actually, to help segue to Flying Games... Um, I will say that <laughs> I wanted to make an album. I was certainly exploring that whole question of varying versus non-varying. I mean, one of the things that, that I love about Scott Murawski is the way he varies. And it still keeps the, the way he swims with his rhythm, with his rhythm playing. Sure. And I have this one song on the, on the album, Moonlight. Mm -hmm. um, and it's, it's difficult live because it's in six and it has a syncopated bass line and, and I have to sing a different syncopation over the syncopated bass line and I lose the one because it's in six. and um, So it's a little bit of a challenge. But we did the outro. When we got to the outro just a few, just less than a week ago, and Rachel was playing, she's such a great jazz player and she kind of took a jazzy approach to the outro, which it is kind of anyway. I was playing tiny keyboard piano on that, like in logic, fake and tiny keys piano, doing myself a little, little fake jazz licks, but she's the real deal. And Scott was comping and he was varying. So this is the opposite end of the spectrum. Every chord and every rhythm stab was different, but it never lost the lilting flow. And mm -hmm. I, and when it ended, I said, I told him that I cried, which I did. I had to actually go over and get a tissue because of the way he was comping these. I mean, there really aren't That's guitar the players. 
He, yeah, and plus he's such a smiley and joyous person, and we've done the interplay and the telepathy and the songwriting for so many years. It's just a very nice... But, but then I was just acutely uh, noticing it and appreciating it. And so with the, the making of the album, that's what I was kind of facing because I, I really wanted to have... I tend to make albums that are eclectic and with a lot of different kinds of material, and I really wanted there to be flow. I didn't want it like have a bunch of songs that take you way out in the middle of somewhere else. So I do use different grooves for every song. Uh, and then within each song, so like the first song is tilting, it's incessant. The bass line is, is very incessant. Um, but then as it unfolds to the end of the song, I allowed there to, you know, there were a lot of contributions. It was during the, the, the lockdown. And a lot of, and the other band members had all given more than one track per song, like all kinds of different. Robert Walter was sending the most interesting and creative different kinds of keyboards. Some didn't sound like keyboards at all for every song. And so by the outro, in this very short amount of time, it's not a big jam, but uh, all these other sound, sounds get sprinkled in. Uh, but okay. it starts out with this thing that's like dance music. It's like, how can I tease the difference between what's like really. I'm almost boring and incessant about dance music and mix it with jam, this sort of everything is improvised vibe that is the world I'm coming with. So I think a lot of the album is actually that like uh, straddling of that and seeing where can it fall. Well, it's it's a success, man. It's a great record. Congrats. Really, really cool. Thank you. And, Appreciate it. And you mentioned like there's a few of the tracks like um, Pure Energy, sun never sets that have like yeah. a really cool almost like indie kind of electro dance vibe but with with your stamp very clearly on there and i would say that that's true of all the songs i hear a lot of consistency in terms of like the voice that's being expressed but also a lot of variation now you mentioned process wise that you had people sending you parts so Essentially, a lot of these songs started as kind of like your sonic experiments at your home studio, mm -hmm. right? And then did you did you build out of a, a framework for these tracks, like lay down a rhythm track that they, you know, the the other artists then played to, or like how did that work process? Yeah, they I, because yeah, we were we were supposed to record it in the studio, and I was, and then the the, the pandemic hit. I was really glad. Well, not that the pandemic hit, but that we weren't going into a studio because I didn't want this to be a band in a room. And I love a band in a room. <laughs> but um, I, and I took eight months and it was some of the best eight months of my entire life. Jared and I were going in every day for eight months, every weekday and Flash Gordon, my cat, and lighting the fire on the wood stove. And we got to experiment. So some of the, they, the songs started all different ways. Some of them were demos that became, uh, you know, all the tracks replaced and some of them even kept from the demo. Um, some were live recordings, and in the live recordings, um, it was crazy because we maybe a demo was made by taking 30 tracks of live and but only mixed down to a two, you know, using a two-track recording and stretching and time, you know, pitching, time stretching and also pitching these two bars at a time or one bar yeah. and carving it into a song. Uh, we're using this bit of this jam, this bit of that jam. And then this person, David DeCristo, took the 30 tracks and found the slivers and did the same pitching and stretching uh, that, we, that we had done in the demo from a live recording and Whoa. made it so, and keeping it in sync without it glitching was, was 
really, fortunately, I know this guy, Loudon Stearns, who teaches all to the Berkeley School of Music, all of the different kinds of recording software. And he gave some good advice about making it so it would stay in sync. Um, and then for the live stuff, I didn't want it to sound live. So we took, we turned off any room mics, turned off the overhead on the drums, anything that would bring ambience, and then replaced anything that wasn't good enough. So for example, Back in the Bubble is actually a live recording. Love and I song. had loved the... Thanks. The demo, uh, and, yeah, because we had already been playing it live. The demo I really liked too. And it um, had a different quality and some different parts. But the live, we found some live versions that were really good feeling. And that was one of them. Took away everything ambient. But then one thing that didn't seem good enough, either in terms of the performance or the tone or some combination on the live version, was the bass. So I recorded all the bass. But the drums were the drums were great and the guitar was great. And so then what we were able to do is take some elements from the demo that had gotten lost and sort of recreated them. So there was a big... I just really liked... I loved being creative for eight months and getting to say, okay, we're going to try it this way, we're going to try it that way, we'll try it you know, from the demo, we'll try it from scratch. Some things started from scratch. Um, you know, we take a live version and then see what's best and then start to layer and see like, well, when have we gone too far? You know, because for every song, well, using like, like Connected, I play guitar. And, and, and I think it's actually a little tiny acoustic guitar, travel, like backpacking guitar with a pickup that... Um, that then in logic it makes is made to sound like electric guitar, but it was so like as a vibey part. And we had these meetings with Sean Everett early on because he was going to be the producer, and instead he just gave us prompts for each song. And one thing he said was, "Keep that guitar part. Don't change that guitar part." But there is also plenty of room for other guitar playing from Scott, and so he would just send not you know a few but twenty tracks of guitar. He's like, "Well, tracks." Uh, 14 through 19 have a certain thing, but you might like the earlier ones because they have this other thing. And then Jared and I would just go through. Jared and I have a telepathic connection now because we've worked together for 22 years. We just know. Like, uh, mm-hmm. mark this one up, erase that one, put that one. Oh, maybe we'll fly this one over. Often we were on a grid so we could fly things around too. Um, I just really liked the, the being able to do it myself. Being able to like and spend the time. I mean, it took Tom Schultz ten years to make the first Boston album, and in thinking about it, I bet he had a fun ten years. <laughs> um, and he wasn't even going to have a career unless someone someone said like, "Oh, that single, more than a feeling, is it, it, it's really catchy. You should you should put it on the radio." And then, oh, it's actually a number one single. You should put together a band and go on the road. And like, oh, uh, but it's just this fun of experimentation thing. Is so you know, people do it in different ways, you know. Um, virtuoso players like you guys <laughs> might like get in a room and, and, and toy around musically and other people might toy around with electronics and or other people might toy around with layering with multi-tracks and seeing what comes so there's so many different ways to do it um, but this way we got this time we got to try different ways for every song and even if there's like an acoustic guitar I usually played acoustic guitar um, and so we would take eight acoustic guitars and demo them and see which sounds the best and then try it. Same thing with parts. Like, oh, this sounds too full. Can we just play a few notes at a time? Or like, a, you know, spirit, just all the experimenting that's normal for people to do in studios, but to have eight months to do it. Um, so, and, and essentially, it sounds like you're sort of playing the role of producer and writer all at once, kind of like putting the music together and yeah. writing and conceiving it kind of all at the same time. Well, ironically, so 
Scott and I had done, we, we've always done writing sessions and we had a few different writing sessions that led to some of the songs on the album. And those are probably the ones that we had, had already been playing live. Uh, and in some cases we rethought them. And then I had done in, in my little office studio, I had done a month, a song a day month with Jared and came up with a lot of material from that. And we didn't use it all, but in terms of what fit together, even in those cases, I would go back to Scott and we would do our Wednesday night thing where we kind of check out the music and the lyrics and change it and make it better. Um, we just have a great flow for that when we're in. We're not doing it year round, but when we are doing it, um, we just have so much fun. We laugh and we, we, we be creative. And so even those ones I had done just with Jared, um, Jared's kind of like putting on the engineer and producer cap and I'm kind of like the yeah. songwriter person. Um, and then... Well, there's one song of Scott's, and there's there's a couple other places these might come from, but it's mostly that. There were well, actually 22 songs when we started. Uh, people accuse me of putting too much of not throwing away anything, but there's there's and I still would like to use some of the others. I, I like to look backwards and forwards and in every direction to to see what's going to work because it's because it's fun. For all of you out there listening, when Mike refers to this stuff being on the grid. Basically, what, what he means is it's done to a time-aligned grid so that I can record banjo parts or you know anyone can record parts that go to that grid and then you can sort of swap them out. And what you end up with is this huge pool of essentially samples that fit into these the framework of this song in different places. And you open the door to really using the studio as its own instrument, you know, sort of like a long... Well, it's, um it, there's there's pros and cons. I'm sorry, I interrupted you. Oh, I was just gonna say, sort of like uh, you know the ultimate extension of like Sergeant Pepper's. You know, just like right. the studio. The studio was once this place where you went in, played the music, and then it was on a recording. And and eventually, right. over time, as technology has evolved and our sensibilities have evolved along with it, now the studio is its its whole own tool, and it's cool. I mean, I I did the same thing on my. Last record, Trance Banjo, yeah. was, you know, it was a lot of beats mm. and sample. And I did almost everything here except for a few tracks of live drums. And and it was great, you know, in terms of creativity. It was like, wow, you, you sort of can act as producer and artist and visionary sort of all at one time and, and take the music as a whole somewhere that's your total own mm -hmm. vision. You know what I mean? Well, there's so much that people can do on their own. Remember when I was a film studying filmmaking um, in college, my teacher was in the art department and he believed he was just into the style of film, independent filmmaker style, artsy style, where and not only did he do everything from figuring out what this film was, you know, scripting, if, if you could call it that. And these are artsy films uh, and cinematography and lighting, but he also and editing, but he would he would actually do his own optical printing and he would get effects by like having a, doing a print of a print and having it uh, degrade. Um, and then there's the world and I've been writing, working on a screenplay too. So uh, I think about these things, but um, there's the world of Hollywood where there's so, you know, so many hundreds of people on every project that um, uh, it's just a huge collaboration. Um, and, you know, and then sometimes maybe the, the director will become the artiste if there is room for that such of, uh, you know, a real visionary. And, and some of my favorite films involve the writer uh, being the director, I've noticed. And then ultimately, the it's really cool that then you guys get to go out and play these songs live and they're going to become a whole yeah. other thing. I assume it probably feels like that. I mean, you just came in from 
tour, they probably had a whole yeah. new life on stage. It's it's interesting. Yeah, definitely. And it's always bound to happen. Sometimes things are more challenging because, you know, singing and playing at the same time, if it, they're both syncopated differently uh, or other, you know, maybe some kinds of sounds and layers and that were just easy, easier to stack up in the studio. But then, as you said, everything becomes new. I really liked, just as one example, the song Tilting, which has that incessant bass line. And at first I thought, how am I going to keep that going and sing? And then I discovered, actually, it's not so hard. Like, probably the voice goes with the bass. Actually, there's two moments in the chorus that are like little nightmares, where the first, the voice comes right before the bass as an anticipation, and then a couple of beats later, the bass comes right before the voice and backwards from the previous, and it's like, <laughs> you know, it's hard to execute that. But what I found with tilting live is that I can actually do anything within that rhythm and key. Um, and I got really playful, even while I was singing cool. the verses, to be, be able to just dance around. And that's such a great feeling because then I feel free. And and then from that feeling of freedom comes stuff that's cooler and, and you know, fit, more fitting because yeah. it came naturally. Yeah. Uh, but just to circle back for one second, so we were talking about the grid and explaining what that allows. It's... It, I mean, it, and it allowed us to take, since everything's on a certain pulse, uh, and we're looking at the Pro Tools screen and stuff, if Scott had a great guitar lick at the beginning of a take that he had sent us, and we wanted to use it at the end, then we did, because it's the same tempo. Uh, but conversely, you know, it's a mixed blessing. Um, and the Fish Guys have made a couple albums. The, the albums we did with Bob Ezrin were, well, other ones too, uh, on a click. And the benefit of the click is if, you know, with a whole band, if we have two weeks and a ton of material, and you know, we could spend two weeks on just the drums or bass and drums, you know, uh, it's not a lot of time, and we want to get done a lot. And, and, and Bob Ezrin and his people were so quick that the way that they could work quickly is to be on a click. Um, but playing to a click is a click is difficult. You have to learn how to like having a click in your headphones. You have to learn that it's that it's okay to get a little uh, ahead of it or a little behind it. Um, but there are certain people who have felt that it's just not cool. Like John Fishman, I think, was saying, I never want to do that again. And if you listen to, like, a Bob Marley recording, th there's this um, website, which is like an app that you, you just put a song into it, and it shows you the tempo mm -hmm. grid. And the Whalers are, were one of the most grooving bands of all time, of all, all of human history. But you look at the beginning, and it's one tempo, and you look at the end, and it's like 50% faster. Yeah, and yeah. It's, But that's because it's, well, it's, it's not breathes. bad. It's like human. M yeah, exactly. Music moves, and we change, and you know, the only moment we're ever in is the present. And so if something's yeah. different in the future, you know, you can't necessarily anticipate or account for that. You just have to be following along with how you feel, how everyone else feels. Mm -hmm. yeah. Or, and sometimes it's subconscious. I mean, it can go the other way too, where so many bands, including ones I've been in, will play a song and it starts rushing so much that by the end, it's just 
you know, agitated. Um, it doesn't feel comfortable. It's not a nice thing. It's, a, it's, it's an uncomfortable thing. And the click can remedy that situation. You know, it, 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 having a click makes things sound a little poppier because, um, you know, for better or worse. Uh, I really like playing with this whole loose and tight thing too, where it's just like I like playing with varying and non-varying. Um, but and what's that all the, about? Well, so having a click, and not only that, but having a baseline that really repeats a lot incessantly, um, to be a little bit like take something from dance music and electronic music, but then to vary other things. And you know, other people have done this. With, create, with creative results. I really like that juxtaposition of something mm. that's synthetic and something that's natural, or something that's like incessant and something else that's free-floating. I, I just like playing with those lines of those balance points. Um, so in some cases on this album, I actually wanted the bass to vary more than I had on previous albums, where I could just like the song Connected, for example, and there's a few of these, where I just want the bass to be able to go all over the place. In Connected, I thought, oh, well, I'll just have the... The, the vocal line, and then the bass, back and forth, back and forth, and then they won't have to interfere with each other. They can just be like almost like call and response. And when it got to be too literally a call and response, it seemed cheesy. Uh, like I was passing the word, the lyric f to the bass. Like, what did she think? She thought, boom, 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 boom. That's, that's kind of like a eh, uh, little too on point feeling. It needs to be a little more poetic, I think. So what I did was I, th I still liked the concept is I sort of overlap them more. I changed the lyrics, which would be more of a little, a literal passing of the message to the bass, and I'd let it be more abstract, but I still had the back and forth, and as a result, I could just kind of go all over the place on the bass, and I wanted that too, because I wanted, I guess what I'm doing is I'm exploring more non-varying and more varying at the same time. I guess that's what I was doing. So do you have I really a sense- wanted flow. Do you have a sense of, of which of these songs might come into the Fish repertoire, or? Oh man, well, uh, okay, so first of all, Fish has already played two of them um, before, and it's always sort of a funny feeling like, oh, I've got these new songs, but the album isn't gonna be out for a year. But that's right. what we did. We played Mull, we've been playing a lot. Um, you know, it's, the album version is one thing, the Fish version is another thing, my version is another. What happened with the album version of that song is interesting because um, it didn't fit the, it was one of the songs that I really liked and wanted to keep with, but didn't fit the album. And it didn't fit the album because the original recording was all just bar band, rock and roll, organ, electric guitar, standard fare. And the rest of the album had electronic elements and certain kinds of <coughs> textures and treatments that were a little bit more tweaked, a little bit more, eh, it just warped in certain ways. And that one was a little too straight sounding. And, and when we went in, Jared and I went into the, the, the workshop and we put this thing online, I think, showing some of it. We clanged on, we banged on tractors with wrenches and sampled it and played that along. And that was interesting, but it didn't really solve the problem. It just added a bunch of clitter clatter, you know, uh, clickety clackety. Um, but when Sean Everett got it, he just tore it up. He said, I don't, I'm going to take away all the guitar and the organ. I was like, well, that's what the song is based on. He's like, I don't care. It's just... You know, and then he said, and then he got, and I've talked about this before. He he had me choose a multi-track legend, uh, multi-track tape recording of a legendary song, and I chose "Higher Ground" by Stevie Wonder. And he started to model that song, even though it has nothing to do with it. And the one thing he noticed is that the drums were on the Stevie Wonder song were delaying a lot. There were a lot of echoes on the drums, so we did that. 
And then he just went crazy with the bass and, and the sound that he got. It's a lot of him. I don't even know how he did it. It's a very vocal and distorted bass sound. And since he had cleared everything else away except the vocal and the drums, you can really hear it. And then the organ and the guitar both come in, but his feeling is like, if that kind of stuff is in there, it just needs to be warped. And both in the analog and the digital world, he relentlessly warps things. You know, and he's often, we, we would get, and originally he was the producer, so he ended up giving us prompts for every song with some long zooms, and then we spent a year, and then he was the mix, the person who mixed it. Okay. But when we got into the mix, it's kind of like, every day Jared and I would get in there, he's like, I did something, I worked till five in the morning, I did something, you're probably not gonna like it. So one example is that little um, Egyptian high-pitched voice that in Revolution of the Mind. Okay. That was just something that Sean did overnight. It didn't have that at all. That song was Scott and I in North Adams, Mass, imitating some dance music with Scott doing some really fun and me helping him programming of drums and bass and synths. And then taking this poem that we had written together about being kind of on board and creating Revolution of the Mind. Um, actually, it was just a skeleton of, of it in North Adams. Uh, and then maybe it developed more when I was working with Jared. Anyway, um, but, Sh but, but Sean just took this Egyptian cheesy love movie and took the, vo the voice and sampled it and pitched it up to you know, an octave or two and, and shoved it in there and, put, and, and made it match rhythmically. He had done stuff like that on my previous album. Uh, on a go-go, he was the producer. And that song, Whirlwind, it, which only has two chords, and when it goes to the other chord, the five chord, um, the pre-chorus, he took... Um, uh, Gershwin, you know, maybe it was Rhapsody in Blue or something like that, but at least a hundred-piece orchestra, and he put it in Melodyne. That's the program for people who don't Change know that allow you to, but pitch and the timing. Yeah, all right. Of a hundred instruments to make it match our eight-bar pre-chorus. So he's he just is always thinking outside the box, and he was doing that. So we come in, and there's this Turkish voice. He's like, I don't think you guys are going to like it. It's crazy, and it, it's playing with a whatever it is throughout the whole song, and Jared and I are like, actually, we kind of like it, let's keep it. <laughs> and But can you have it a little less? Does it have to happen 38 times? Can it be like eight times? Well, the creativity um, comes through, man, and the record is really, cool. really cool. Thank, Congrats. Thank you. Yeah, I Thank didn't, you. Appreciate didn't get a chance to see you guys live. I, I, I checked out some, some videos getting ready, but I assume that all those shows are on the Live Fish app, right? No, no they're gonna, some will be. Some um, will be, okay. I've kind of, like, I really, that's another thing I, I admire about Trey, is that he puts all of his shows up, always. Um, with me, I feel like I don't play as much, and I experiment so much that things, I really want to check out when I'm putting it out, because sometimes it, 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 
feels better than other times. And so, and then we kind of like listen back and make some choices. And usually there's a delay, but we'll put some of them up. I know I really enjoyed the Peach Fest set. And that okay. one was, it was a free, free webcast. And I think, so if you have the Live Fish app, it's, it's a free, you can actually watch it after the fact. It just felt like a really good one for me anyway. Just felt, I was energized and I didn't even have a sound check yet. It was the best sound maybe of my life. One of the best sound sonic experiences of my life with no sound check, which is Are why you? probably Bruce, Ham- Bruce Hampton's quote was sound check is for cowards. <laughs> <laughs> that's not my, that's not the way I roll, but. Check out the great Colonel Bruce Hampton for, for all of you who need some, some inspiration from a, he- from a wise sage. He died, you know, on stage at his 70th birthday party during his favorite song, Love Light, Bobby Blue, Blobbly Blue Bland. But, um, but I had spent 5,000 hours working on my first feature-length movie, which was featured him, which was Outside Out. Yeah, well, he's, <laughs> he's, he's a one-of-a-kind. So you're, you're about to head out now on, uh, on Fish Tour. Are you, are, you, are you feeling ready for this? It's, it's a, that's a lot of energy to manage. Yeah. It's not like just heading out to play a few casual shows. Yeah. Um, I'm ready. I'm ready enough. There's just all the scurrying of, like I was saying, overlapping the end of a tour with the beginning of a tour when both are usually a bit stressful. It, and then usually when I get on tour, then I can start sleeping and then I can start relaxing and there'll be a lot of work to do and practicing and, but it's easier once I'm there. Um, uh, I leave in less than two days I leave in a day and a half. I want to respect your time here, but this has been, mm. this has been so awesome. But I, I did want to ask really quick though, when yeah. fish is get, when fish is getting ready to go on, what is the last like 30, 40 minutes before you go on stage look like? How do okay. you really get in the zone for something like yeah. that? Yeah. Um, it's different different in different eras, I would say. Um, lately, that's the, that's been the time period that we've been practicing. Okay. Um, not till the last minute, though, sometimes, but till 10 minutes before the last minute. Um, I think that's kind of good, actually, because what it is, is it's just the four of us in a room. Sometimes Renee, the photographer, is there, or sometimes there's someone else. But usually it's just the four of us in a little... And, and then since it's a tiny room, <coughs> now we're on in-ear monitors, both bands. And just to have little amps and none, not of, none of that extra technology. I mean, there might be some pedal boards and whatever, but just to pair it way down in a tiny room with just the four of us and our souls and our uh, musicianship or whatever it is that we do, um, I think is grounding. I think it's a connecting cool. thing. Um, and it's not, we haven't always done that. I think maybe it's gone in phases. Sometimes we would do uh, no rehearsing or only rehearsing on our own. And sometimes we would have done it earlier in the day or, but that's kind of been the vibe. Um, people do meditate there. I think, well, now I think it's down to two. Three of us were doing transcendental meditation. Um, and sometimes before the show. I know at least one person does it before the show because it's, 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 it's um, and I usually save it on show days till later in the night, um, but sometimes I do. And but even if we're not doing the actual sitting, I think there's kind of a meditational vibe. I know Trey has a beautiful prayer that he he says, and it's it's designed to humble himself and to recognize that there are many stars in the sky, and that I'm just you know one. Uh, conduit for all the, the for the energies of the universe, and it's not all about me. And and it's a beautiful thing. Um, cool. People have their little rituals. You know, yeah. with Fishman, maybe it's a uh, well. Fish practices for um, hours every day. He's he's one of the most does he really practiced people. Um, so he's in there doing 
either whether it's some new crazy beat or whether it's simple rudiments and and then he's picking out his dresses now that he has 14 <laughs> different colors of moo moo um, so that's probably his last thing and you know people have their rituals um, it's good to have a yeah. something about ritual that you know have a regular thing um, and then we go out there and then it you know it's hard to predict what the feeling's going to be till we're out there and the acoustics and because it changes from soundcheck the people are in and that changes the acoustics and it changes the energy and then do you guys once the show is wrapped up do you put your heads together and do some review like oh man it really went off tonight or this needs to be better what is that like uh, well you're asking a big question okay let me answer that question because that's a big question well in between sets we used to analyze the first set and we developed in the late 90s the no analyze rule because the okay. analyzing tied people's hands because we would say like Trey would say to fish um Whoa, those were some fast tempos. And then the second set would come out with the slowest tempos you've ever heard because gotcha. there's a self-consciousness that yeah, comes from thinking. the analyzing. And I might be on stage thinking, maybe I'll try something crazy. Maybe I'll like move to a, the flat two chord when no one's expecting it. And and then I would think, eh, better not because I'll get shit for it. Or you know, we'll just all talk about how it wasn't good. But with knowing that we're not going to talk about it, the rule was like we could say, oh, that was a great set or wasn't that song good, or but, but not tearing it up. It was a huge, it was a great tool and cool. it made things better. And then so, but as for the second set, we, we go from the stage to, we leave. We go from the stage to the car or the bus, possibly to the plane, um, where, whatever it is, we leave uh, immediately and we're usually not together. Usually we're going to different buses. So there might be some texting like, oh my God, that was so great and you know, whatever, you know, positive stuff. And if it's negative, it's critical stuff, usually we save it for the next day. Sure. And then maybe okay. we're back together and someone might say, huh, when we did this one thing, what if we did this other, what did it a different way and, you know, in a constructive kind of way. And people say about, our friends have said that the greatest thing about fish is how we say yes to each other. We do the yes and thing. And someone picks out a different chord or a different rhythm or a different, if something's faster than it usually is. We could talk about it, but to go with it. Like, go yes, with it. this is what it is. I love that. Um, that's, it's, that's it great works advice. a lot better than analyzing the hell out of it. Um, yeah. It's acceptance is, is a huge thing. Anyway, acceptance. <laughs> that's question, a great, though. that's yeah. a great place to wrap up. And I yeah. just have to say, thank you so much, Mike. Seriously, man, this, yeah, this has I, been, I enjoy talking to you. <laughs> this has been great. And you know, you've cool. shared so much cool experiential stuff with us and, I know I can't wait to thank see you, you cool. out there this summer. But Mike Gordon, thank you so much for joining us on the All podcast right. today. Yeah, man. thanks for having me. Yeah. There you have it. The legendary Mike Gordon giving us the goods and doing it while Fish Tour is in full swing. So cool to get an inside look at how the magic comes together. Thank you all so much for tuning in today. Huge thank you to my sponsors, Deering Banjos and Winter Wondergrass, and a shout out to Osiris Media and Americana Vibes for helping me make the podcast happen. If you dig what you hear, please head over to Apple Podcasts and leave me a glowing review. I need all the help I can get fighting the algorithmic machine, but it's working. We have cracked the top 100 music podcasts on Apple, and there's two more episodes to go here in season four, and I've got some great guests on deck to round out the season. Next up is the Milk Carton Kids, an amazing duo. They have a phenomenal new record. Loved learning all about this incredible band, and you can hear all about it right here in two weeks when we go back inside 
the musician's brain. Hey music fans, we wanted to let you know about Music on the Mountain, a show that will feature Anders Osborne, Dogs in a Pile, and Saints and Liars. This show will be directly after the Divided Sky Foundation's fun run at 2pm on Saturday, May 18th at the base of Akimo Mountain in Ludlow, Vermont. The show is presented by The Phoenix, a national nonprofit organization offering support to those in recovery and anyone impacted by substance use to celebrate recovery. If you're running in the Divided Sky Foundation's fund run, you'll be automatically registered for the show. It's a family-friendly event, and all proceeds from ticket sales and other donations benefit the Divided Sky Foundation. Visit Music on the Mountain, that's musiconthemtn.com, for more info and to get tickets. That's musiconthemtn.com. Hope you enjoy. Hi, I'm Daniela Clark. I'm Barbara Ann Wild. And we are The Honest AF Show. Our podcast is real, honest conversation with our celebrity friends and pros. Covering our anything but average rock and roll lifestyles. All while tackling the hell that is aging and the battle of beauty. Oh yeah, nothing is off the table. The Honest AF Show is available wherever you get your podcasts. <laughs> <laughs> 